welcome to a whole new season of the Tishcast. It's September. It's after Labor Day. I've had my long two-week soak in the tidal pools of the Outer Cape and have dutifully, as is tradition, developed a bronchial infection <laughs> called the Cape Cod Crud, which in my case, because my lungs are so shitty anyway, is, is the reason I have this incredibly sexy, raspy voice today. So forgive me for the slight huskiness of my, of my pearls of wisdom. I am thrilled today to have the author of a book that I found really fascinating. And that seems to me to be a very important theme in the coming years in our politics and one that the Dishcast is going to be focusing on a bit this year. And that is the new right, the alt-right, the thinkers that are generating a post-liberal version of conservatism, how those post-liberal visions have come about, what their origins are, what the structure of the argument is, and whether it's viable as a political project, whether it's actually the future as we face, or whether it's a detour that we will avoid. Well, Matthew Rose has written a book, A World After Liberalism, which is a study of several really interesting and important radical right thinkers. He's currently senior fellow and director of the Barry Center on the University and Intellectual Life, which is a project of the Morningside Institute. And he previously taught at Villanova. He's written for magazines such as First Things and The Weekly Standard. So he's a man of the right, and yet this book is also both a kind of strange appreciation and yet also horror at. <laughs> it's a strange book because it, it manages to combine both an awareness of the danger and weirdness of some of these ideas, but also their compelling nature and how deep a chord they strike with us. I tried to grapple with this myself a few years back when I wrote a, an essay called on reactionism, where I try to understand exactly the power of reactionary thought as it was coming of age at the Claremont Institute and beyond. But this book is a much more comprehensive and interesting account of various thinkers who have come to define and reshape the right both in Europe and America and to some extent in Russia and elsewhere. Matthew, thank you so much for coming on the, on, on the Dishcast. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Matthew, tell me a little bit, as I always ask at the beginning of this, where did you grow up and how on earth did you come to be a student of older right-wing radical, radical reactionaries? <laughs> I grew up in the deep north. I grew up in the upper Midwest. I was born in North Dakota and split my childhood between North Dakota, Minnesota, and Iowa. My dad was an agronomist, my, and he owned and ran his own business. My mom was a nurse. On both sides of my family, I come from what you might call a pioneer background. The family and the communities I grew up in were middle class, but you might say we were exceptionally wealthy in social trust and social capital. The places I lived in had few noticeable divisions in terms of 
class or politics and certainly not in race and whatever visible kind of social markers I would have been aware of as a child largely had to do with where people went to church on Sundays. I was an indifferent student. I was a poor student and I went to class, I think, in large part to remain eligible for sports. But at the same time, I was always fascinated by ideas. I was fascinated by literature and history. I was captivated by the world of magazines and bookstores and what I took to be the kind of world of intellectual debate as I understood it. I knew from an early age that I wanted to get a liberal education. And after four years at a small liberal arts college in the Midwest, I went on to do a PhD in religion and spent a few years kicking around teaching full-time at the university level. Andrew, your question asked about how my background got to where we are today, and there's really no straight line from that background to what we'll be talking about. But I should say that as a young person and as a student, I was really fascinated by the relationship between religion and political ideas. I thought that, I thought then, I still think now, that the most interesting and the deepest questions of human life really argued out in the kind of relationship between people's religious aspirations and political realities. I remember as a high school teacher telling us about the story of a philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. And I remember thinking that this was the kind of person who the kind of the intensity of life and the intensity of his relationship with the society. I remember thinking that Soren Kierkegaard was the type of person that, that if I didn't want to model myself after, that that was a person I'd like to commit my life to understanding. I'm not sure what that says about me as a 16-year-old, but here we are today talking about radical ideas and radical lives. Were you, what religion were you brought up in? I was raised Protestant. I grew up Lutheran. Growing up in the upper Midwest meant that people were by and large either Lutheran or Catholic. And I grew up in a kind of very kind of healthy, vibrant, pietistic tradition in Lutheranism in the upper Midwest for which in many ways I remain very grateful for. I became Catholic as an adult, but I've always been one that really saw a lot of the positives in the kind of Lutheran tradition that I was raised in. What I'm fascinated by, and it's similar a little bit to the childhood that I had, is that it was a world which made total sense, that the, the ultimate transcendence, transcendent truth of Christianity permeated everything. It made sense of everything. And you lived in a community in which those things were taken for granted. So it was, in some respects, a kind of pre-modern, pre-cosmopolitan experience that you then, of course, as you grow older and as you go out in the world, you leave behind. And one of the things I, I sense in your book is an appreciation of the world that you left and an understanding of it not being easily explained, its virtues a little unclear to anyone outside of it, and a sense of human flourishing in that context, which is all of which would leave one to be, as I became and as others also become, skeptical of liberalism's liberating charms and complexities. So maybe that is that, would I be wrong in inferring a little bit of that informs your fascination with, as well as your kind of horror of, these kind of ideologies? I think that's powerfully and eloquently put, and I wish I'd put it that well in my book. The world I grew up in was a world in which Christianity permeated 
and informed and defined almost everything. However, it did so in a very kind of quiet, unobtrusive, and really undogmatic way. The boundaries between school life and church life and family life and sports life were very porous. The teachers and coaches and friends that I saw in school were the teachers and friends that I saw in church. But religion had a way of being everywhere and nowhere. It had a way of defining everything without speaking in too loud of a voice. And I think, or at least I imagine, now seeing my life, that part of my life in the rearview mirror, that what was really structuring and what was really dignifying and ennobling a world in which distinctions of class and race and background made very little difference was that kind of Christian morality. One of the charms about upper Midwestern life at the time was that without being ever told or asked or commanded, upper Midwestern towns had a way of agreeing upon levels of consumption and forms of consumption at which all people of the community could meet. And so there was a kind of pressure towards middle-class habits and middle-class respectability and meeting middle-class norms that required very little kind of social enforcement, at least kind of Give me two or three examples of those middle-class institutions, norms, practices that, was it was it the same kind of family restaurants you would go to? Would it be, you, you tell me how. Yeah, but the first I just mentioned, which is that the, which is that kind of spontaneous self-organization of a community around a level of consumption that was respectable and that was decent. You don't want to stand out too much. You don't want to stand out. Be... Patterns of dress patterns of self-presentation, ways of speaking and displaying and advertising yourself, ways of talking about your accomplishments enforced a certain set of virtues. I'm sure they also enforced other sets of problems for other people, but that was certainly one way in which the norms of community really structured it. Certain forms of behavior were kept out of view. I don't remember things like a divorce and certain forms of civil disturbances ever becoming a source of kind of gossip or problem for the community. No doubt they existed. Crime was almost in, almost inconceivable to me as a child. Andrew, you, you might laugh at this and it may sound quaint and no doubt it is, but when I was a child, we not only didn't lock our homes when we left our homes, we didn't lock our homes when we went on vacation. I remember when, we was at, when I was about 12 years old, we moved to a suburb of Des Moines which put the fear of God into me because I looked on the Rand McNally hatless and I saw that Des Moines was a population of almost a quarter of a million people. Now, this is when, this is the 80s, right? This is the early 90s. Yeah. What are, we can call it sheltered, your background. Yeah. But also wonderful insofar as you didn't feel out of place in it. Is that, is, would that be true? It, shelter wouldn't be the first word to come to my mind. My community and my family encouraged intellectual interest and intellectual independence. Had I told my parents that I wanted to study any number of things, it would have been supported and encouraged. And by and large, the community did the same. I didn't find it to be stunting or limiting in any way, but certainly I was the horizons of experiences that defined my life were quite limited in many ways. One of the interesting things about this book, I think, and one of the most important insights I think you have into 
the new is that the world you describe is saturated with Christianity. And you your experience is that kind of holistic Christian cultural experience. That seems to be a kind of world which the right might want to return to, a kind of idyllic, communitarian idea of a Christian community that offers itself as a kind of alternative to, although I would understand it to be a component of a liberal society in which different communities can coexist with different cultures and different, but nonetheless, what's interesting about the new, and I think it's the most interesting part of your book, really, is its deep roots in hostility to Christianity. That Christianity for the new right is in fact not the salvation force. It's not the place you want to go back to. It is the source of most of our liberal problems. I'm going to quote, I don't do this often, but you write so beautifully, and I do recommend reading this book for those reasons, about the radical right and Christianity, because I think it also helps make sense of Trump, whom I regard as a fundamentally pagan force in, in the world. Quote, the radical right critiques Christianity, not for restricting individual autonomy, but for inventing it. Not for reinforcing human inequalities, but for dismantling them. Not for intolerance of outsiders, but for openness to them. We tend to think of anti-Christian arguments as a feature of the secular left, but the oldest criticisms of Christianity as we will see, actually come from the radical right, who fear that Christianity severs human roots in history and nature. Now, that's something I think most people haven't fully absorbed. Let's talk about the first person who really encapsulated that, and one of the key figures in the book, Spengler, and then his translator, the Italian Julius Evola, Oswald Spengler. Yes. Tell us Spengler's fundamental diagnosis of what was going wrong, or what had gone wrong in the West. Yeah, maybe I should first say, Andrew, a little bit about why I think, what I think we can learn from the radical, and then I'll turn into discussing Spengler and Ebola. It might sound strange to say, but conventional wisdom has it that we have nothing to learn from studying the radical right. The ideas and the thinkers and the volumes of the radical aren't found on university curriculum. The thinkers and the personalities are rarely, if ever, depicted in art and literature and thought. And it might sound strange to say, but I think we can learn about the radical right, something about ourselves, something about who human beings are, what human beings can be, and what human beings always be. And the reason to study the radical right is that the radical right gives forceful expression to aspects of human nature that a lot of us prefer to avoid to acknowledge. They give expression to human needs that we sometimes ignore and that we sometimes impute. I'll give you some examples before turning to talk about the first of our couple of thinkers. I'm thinking, Andrew, about our need to be loyal to a particular people our need to be to bond closely with those who are like us, our need to inherit 
and transmit a cultural tradition, our need to sacrifice ourselves and to live for an ideal greater than life, our need to celebrate inequalities of achievement, and our need generally for heroism, risk, courage, and valor. And so as we begin to talk about some of the kind of leading personalities and theorists of the radical, what I would invite listeners to do is that this is not an exercise in helping you understand something simply completely foreign and alien to your own experience, but actually the religious, the radical right can open you up to something deeply true about yourself and about really all of us, aspects of our humanity that oftentimes remain covered up and unexamined. I suppose the place to begin is in a discussion of the historian Osmond Spengler, who's the first person whose portrait I draw and sketch in the book. Spengler is without question the intellectual godfather of the radical right. Spengler dies early in 1936, and he writes a series of influential books and essays from the interwar period in Germany that really are ahead of their time in anticipating a lot of the major fault lines of politics. Not politics simply in the remainder of the 20th century, not simply politics for the world that's going to come after the Second World War, which he perceives, but Spengler really anticipates the shape of politics in the coming third millennium. And he says, what's going to happen in the third millennium? It won't be a simple replay of the great ideological disputes of the 20th century. The question that Spengler confronts is really and fundamentally a psychological question. Spengler surveys the world after World War II, World War I, and what he notices is that the peoples and cultures of Latin America, of Africa, of Asia, India, and elsewhere are slowly rising into a relationship of parity and competitive relationship with the West. For centuries, the West has like overseen when that hasn't exploited the kind of rising world. But what Schmengler anticipates for the third millennium is that what he calls the colored world, the non-white world will rise into a relationship of parity with the white world. And so here's what Spengler sees. Spengler says that this is going to create a deep crisis in Western culture. And the crisis is not that non-Western cultures will rise up with a force of arms. They're not a military or economic or even at the time a demographic threat. But what Spengler foresees is that the rise of the non-white world into a relationship of competitive parity with the West is really going to be shattering and deeply disruptive for the kind of psyche and for the psychology of European peoples. Spengler says that these cultures will arrive in modernity, having been, in a sense, gifted the tools and science and technology from the West. But what they will have preserved and what the West will have lost is a kind of robust, strong sense of their communal identity. What Spengler foresees is a, in the third millennium is a time in which European peoples compete for the recognition of their identity and their cultural identity as non-Western and non-white people enter the modern world. So you would see, for example, China today, going a hundred, we're almost a hundred years later than Spengler's works, exactly that, don't you? You see a civilization that has 
barely any tinge of liberalism in it that is not ethnically diverse. In fact, it is quite pathologically homogeneous in both its ethnicity and its language. And of course, but you also see something that maybe Spengler did not envisage, which was also the arrival in the West itself of large immigrant non-white populations who will themselves necessarily in some ways reinforce liberalism in as much as only a liberal society or one girded on universal principles would ever conceive of admitting large numbers of people who are not of their own stock, as it were, not from somewhere else entirely on the planet, which is for liberals a very natural consequence, but it certainly heightens the contradictions of liberalism in the West, even as, of course, these old ideas, or these deepest ideas of human solidarity, culture, community, nationhood, remain strong elsewhere in the world. How did Evola develop on Spengler's broad idea? Obviously this, but actually, Matthew, what you said was actually really great. I mean, about the old pre-historical humanity and the that's where you might find more empower, more important truths about political life in ancient in the ancient pre-ancient worlds how did let me put it this way how did that understanding of those ancient prehistoric cultures uh, inform 20th century politics 20th century fascism like it sounds like you're just talking about a bunch of of people who play Dungeons and Dragons or, or reread Lord of the Rings or obsessed with how, uh, Game of Thrones. Like, how did that vision of what the past used to be come to affect his views of liberal society in the 20th century in, in Europe? Yeah, I'll try to sketch sketch the kind of really interesting, fascinating, disturbing thought of Julius Evola, who is without question leading theorist of neo-fascism in Europe in the 20th century. Evola takes an idea that he borrows and adapts in some ways from Marshall and Spengler. Spengler says that if we have the right understanding of the nature of human cultures and the kind of metaphysical symbolic order that informs them, that we can peer back through time, peer back through even the rise of historical consciousness, peer back beyond the rise of writing, and human archaeology, and through a certain way of reading ancient texts that we can discern the permanent, primordial, unchanging, absolute political principles that have governed and formed the constitution of every human society that existed before the dawn of human historical consciousness. Everything before the 8th century BC. Evola looks back in time, and he says that all primordial societies all operated on the same principles. He calls them the principles of tradition. He says they are simple, and they are few, and they vary only expression. And if we read in the right way, Norse poetry, Hindu scripture, Roman religion, Celtic legends, Mesoamerican myths, if we read these things in the right way, we will discover that our archaic human ancestors understood the way human society should be built. And what they have to teach us is just remarkably simple. It's that in every traditional culture, 
all of human life, every social activity, every role, every job or task is dedicated to the service of an order of transcendence. In other words, everything we do is a ritual pathway into transcendence. And so the, the way traditional societies work is that they transform all of the everyday activities that we all do, eating, sex, commerce, games, war, social intercourse. It transforms all of those everyday activities into the form of a ritual whose very repetitiveness and whose very, whose very repetitiveness offer a kind of glimpse of something unchanging and eternal. This is like the permanent constitution of human societies. This is like the deep anthropological truth about human societies, that modernity in its hubris, in its blindness, and the lies that it tells about itself has prevented us from seeing. But Evola thinks that if we undergo a certain kind of spiritual training, if we learn how to read texts with the right assumptions and learn how to transform ourselves into the right kind of thinkers, that the boundary in history between archaic human history and today, between modernity and what preceded it, can be surpassed. And that we can learn to get back in touch with the kind of ritual, sacred foundations on which every society has to be. Well, that's what's so fascinating to me, because for me, when I think of these ancient worlds or the world in which human beings were not very reflective. In fact, they were just completely woven into rituals, woven into meaning, woven into social structures and hierarchies with a transcendental, with some kind of supernatural or transcendent god or gods that help put all this in order. Uh, For me as a modern person, I regard that as fundamentally lost. Maybe you and I in our childhoods had some inclination, intimations of. For me, the ancient world of English Catholicism, for example, that was destroyed during the Reformation, the way in which every part of life was ritualized, was there were from your birth to your wedding to your death, it was all within the same context, the feast days, the processions, the harvests, the entire working community that created this whole. Now, I understood that to be, I understand looking back on it, we can be a little bit romantic about it. That probably wasn't quite as wonderful as that. But I understood it to be fundamentally lost, gone. We live obviously in a place where those, that level of enchantment has disappeared is what, but if only seems to think you can get it back, how could you get it back? And if you could get it back, that would require a kind of authoritarianism, would it not? That would be very hard to reproduce in in modernity. So where does Evola get this idea that we can actually recover this ancient past? He gets it through his studies of a really interesting French scholar of comparative religion named René Guénon. And Evola's kind of exposure to Guénon and his conversion to the theories of René Guénon is really the kind of most important moment in his intellectual career. Guénon in and of himself is a really interesting figure. He was a French Roman Catholic who converted to Sufism in the late 20s. He actually moved from Paris to to spend the rest of his life in Cairo. And Guénon popularized what became a really important 
set of books that were foundational to the field of comparative religion, introducing Western audiences and Western scholars to some of the basic texts of Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam. Gwinnon thought that behind all of the world's great spiritual tradition lie, lay a kind of enduring, unchanging core of human knowledge. Gwinnon called that tradition. Evola's great kind of creative insight is to politicize Gwinnon's spiritual discoveries. Evola not only takes from the world of tradition these unchanging perennial political principles of political order, but he also notices or claims to notice that what holds traditional societies together is the sacrality of political authority. If we imagine traditional societies in which all roles, all jobs, all identities are ritual pathways into a higher order, for Evola, all of that is made possible by the sacrality of a political authority that, that in some sense, holds up the entire society. A fusion of the religious and the political yeah. in a leader. Yep, thank you. And that, that, that sounds quite fascistic to me, or it sounds highly theocratic. It sounds like Ayatollah Khamenei, or it, it sounds like... And again, this is the other thing about the radical right that one realizes. It's also in love with these ancient things. It's, it's a little... It's a little hippie. It's a little countercultural. It's a little mystical in its reaching into these ancient spiritual traditions. It's a sense of the aridity, I think, of liberal acquisitiveness, of materialism, of diversity, of choice into something much more mysterious. But again, how is that replicable politically? How do we just come up with some kind of new Shah? theocrat. How does that translate into any kind of political agenda, for example, 20th century Italy? Yeah. yeah it, in Evola's case, it only does so with great difficulty and, and accumulating disappointments. Evola has a very kind of complicated relationship with both Italian fascism and German fascism. Essentially, he argues that fascism in both its Italian and German forms was, was corrupted because it imitated the populism of the ideologies that it sought to replace. It appealed to mass instincts, it appealed to the passions and ideals of the common man, and was really a kind of bottom-up movement rather than being a top-down movement. For Evola, the kind of crisis of modernity is really fundamentally one of political authority. And what liberalism does something really pernicious, which is that it requires that every form of social inequality require special justification. So what liberalism does, according to Avila, is it looks at social hierarchies and it submits them to rational critique rather than shielding them from that. So liberalism is deeply anti-traditional in that character, in that way. It and so would be a concept of meritocracy. For it, it would. And for Evola, again, inspired by his knowledge of the deep traditions, the deep archaic past of human beings, the evil of liberalism is that it's really false to human nature and it's blind to human experience. Because for Evola, most people are born to obey, not to rule. 
And most people find happiness, they find dignity, they find worth, they find meaning in their lives by the kind of comforting continuities of the traditional rhythms and patterns of existence. Evola takes this to places politically that are really disturbing and objectionable. But he has a deep anthropological insight, which I think you touched on, and I think it deserves to be underlined, which is that he thinks of human beings as needing to be protected from their exposure, from their direct exposure to mortality and to time and to change. And this is what tradition does. This is a tradition, it kind of shelters human beings from their own impermanence and from direct encounter with their own coming extinction. Yeah, it's a bomb against existential despair. It gives you things to do. It, it creates an order. It does not leave you alone as an individual facing the abyss, which is, or having to make every radical choice for yourself, yeah. which is actually not that. It's very, it's, that's, a, that's an ideology that's absolutely wonderful for someone like me yeah. or a handful of people who really want to just do whatever they want to do. Yeah. But actually can make life pretty miserable for lots of other people. I don't want to let Evola off the hook. What is the scary political project that he wanted? Did he want a new dictatorship? Did he want, what did he want to actually, who did he support politically in, in the 60s and 70s? Evola really never found the transformative top-down political leader that he was looking for. What he imagines can bring order to decadent modernity and what can redeem human beings from a state in which all authority, all order are being undercut by subversive liberal ideals is a transformative leader who could elevate humanity out of its kind of fallen, degraded state. And the way that this transformative leader could reinstate the truths of tradition would not be by directly appealing to the masses, because after all, that's the vulgar mistake of fascism, that's the vulgar mistake of liberalism democracy. But this transformative leader would somehow have to inspire submission through a contempt for democracy, through a contempt for liberalism, and through a kind of contempt for popular taste. For Evola, the most important thing is that this political leader unite in one office both sacred and political authority. In some sense, it's not even a union of two, two, two authorities because for Evola, all true authority comes from above. All true authority is absolute. All true, abs all true authority is one. And Evola but here's the thing. At that point, I say, this guy, this is absurd. This isn't going to happen. There's no way this is going to occur in modernity. Or if it did, it sounds more like Hitler or Mussolini, even though I understand a kind of high-class Hitler is what we're asking for. Just bonkers. Has no real relationship to reality. It's a, a wish fulfillment. Surely that is one critique you can make of this. You can be saddened by, you can be aware of the failure of liberalism to give people meaning, the disruption of the world that liberalism has brought, which has robbed people of tradition and anchoring without hankering for some new mystical Savonarola slash Caesar who yeah. will bring us all back to sacred past. Yeah, of course, I agree with almost everything you said. But let me push back in one way. 
what Evola says is ridiculous, almost impossible to conceive of. But there's actually a good word for that. And the word for that is Evola is a utopian. And Evola looks at the modern political tradition and he sees the transformative radical effects that the political left in his mind have accomplished through their invocation of certain utopian ideals, which might be unrealistic, which might be impossible, which might cause enormous human suffering and pain, but have nonetheless have lit fires in the minds of men, have toppled governments, and have made things possible, have made things possible by making them first conceivable for people. And so what makes Evola so interesting for me is that he's this very rare intellectual type. He's a utopian thinker, but not of the left, of the extreme right. And so the kind of perfected end state of humanity that he dreams of is not a world where there's no longer violence and greed, in which human beings are bound together in love and brothership and fellowship. It's not of a world where the kind of hierarchies have been flattened and the low have been raised up. Evola is a utopian, but it's a utopia in which Human beings live in a world in which absolutely fixed and certain hierarchy structures life, and it gives all human identities a kind of sacred quality. That is Let's a talk about the because yeah. it's interesting to think of it as a response to the utopian left. When I look at contemporary America, I see an extraordinary utopian concept that we will abolish, abolish yeah. all differences between individuals, that there will be no more difference between the sexes, that all races and cultures are utterly indistinguishable and equal, that any assigned role has to be undermined, that even the very nature of being a man or a woman has to be deconstructed. Yeah. And in any sane world, I think you would regard those views as crazy. At least I do. And yet, they are being imposed with a vigor and a passion and a fanaticism. We're going to abolish the police? In other words, there is a utopianism of the left that has seized liberal structures that people like me, who are old school conservatives, say, how awful, how bad, stop, stop. But... But Evola and these other people are saying, well, so why are you just a tactician in retreat constantly? You're just, all you do is legitimize the utopian left's advances. We need to do something much more radical to counter. We need to have our own utopianism. We need to have our own. The trouble is, of course, that's very difficult democratically to conjure up. Unless you get a a figure like Trump or someone like Trump who somehow represents this utopian right in which hierarchies are enforced, in which, you know, sex roles are mandated, in which (laughs) racial differences are understood, accepted, and allowed. Is that what's going on here? It's really a kind of tactical attempt to rival the left's utopian success. That's exactly what it is, because from the point of view of the radical, one of the common diagnoses that these five thinkers made make of the 20th century is that one of the one of the ways that the left most powerfully controlled the terms and the nature of public discussion was by controlling how people 
generally imagined the trajectory of history. So whether you were left or whether you were right, you largely assume that history moved in one direction. It moved by eliminating barriers to inclusion and equality and freedom of people. And that conservatives' job was to moderate, to slow, to correct the speed at which we got there, maybe the path by which we got there. Conservatives controlled when we sped up or when we slowed down. But really, the destination was controlled by the way liberals imagined the trajectory and the destination of history. Evola and the thinkers I chronicle in this book are utopians to the extent that they think that conservatives will always lose unless they have a stronger argument, unless they have any argument over what the real trajectory of history is. And if that takes the form of a certain kind of utopianism or a certain kind of nationalism or a certain kind of civilizational identity that at least has a kind of ideological use that allows them to imagine the flow of time in a way that doesn't really lead to the same liberal destinations that their opponents want to take them. Which brings us to a fascinating character in your book, an American, Sam Francis, who's Bit like one of us, really, at least one of me anyway. He's a pundit, writer, intellectual, trying to get into political magazines. He's a recognizable figure, except he's dramatically unsuccessful and <clears throat> is regarded as a bit of a crank, but nonetheless has this incredible and seems to be very much influential in the emerging campaign of someone like Patrick Buchanan, who is, I think, probably one of the most important figures in late 20th century American politics. The notion of immigration, not as some sort of natural thing, like the rain, especially when it's mass immigration since 1965, but actually an act to dismantle the nation, an act to destroy the kind of traditions and solidarity that he understood to be part of the West. I'm Tell me a little bit about Sam Francis's career and his how he brought some of these concepts to bear onto the American, because of all the countries that seem to be least propitious for new, which is all about tradition, ethnic homogeneity, ancients. This is completely new country, populated and mandated under liberal order with a vast variety of cultures and traditions. The idea that this place could ever become some vehicle for radical reactionary success has always struck me as bizarre. And yet there was something about Francis that really believed that he could do this in America. Sam Francis, tell me a little bit about him. Sam Francis was a columnist and an essayist who spent his Beltway career working at places like the Heritage Foundation and the Washington Times and writing monthly essays for conservative magazines like Chronicles. Francis was famous, and you might say even notorious, for spending his career attacking a conservative movement that he thought had abysmally failed to understand, let alone represent the kind of class interest of his voters. Francis was always out of step with whatever kind of conventional conservative conventional conservative thinking was at the time. He argued against free trade and the kind of heyday of globalism. He defended entitlements while Republicans were defending tax cuts. 
He was protesting foreign wars while Republicans and Democrats alike were voting to enter them. And he was really deeply critical about the Christian influence of the religious right on the party when it was at, at its apogee. Sam Francis is, I think, most important for offering a diagnosis of the kind of pathologies and problems of the Republican Party in the 90s and 2000s, which in hindsight were really prescient, in which Francis really seemed to anticipate the trajectory of the Republican Party moving to economic populism and cultural nativism. Francis was a Southerner, and he was born in Tennessee, and he could write powerfully and evocatively about his own Southern background. But what's interesting about Francis is that his own political framework was strikingly modern. He looked at the conservative intellectual movement, and he said that its investment in thinking about political life through the lens of ancient and medieval and Christian thought had really blinded it to the realities of power politics that has actually existed and is actually practiced. So Francis looked at a conservative movement that was winning elections, winning the presidency, winning back Congress. But he noticed that conservatives had failed to reduce the size of government and really had failed to reduce the slow of social liberalization. And he asks why that's happening. And he says that conservative intellectuals have made two compounding errors. First, they thought that liberal ideas were their primary enemy rather than the liberal interest groups that they represented. And his second error is that the second error is that conservatives had ignored the relationship between their own ideology and the class interest that it exposed. Francis is something totally sui generis. He is, I think, the only recent, he is, I think, the only thinker on the recent American scene who could be accurately called a kind of right-wing Marxist. Francis sees, I think, is that your average Republican voter is really more actually in touch with what we've been calling tradition and with a simple way of life than an enthusiast for free trade, globalization, the radical shift in sexual mores, the turning of the United States into the most multiracial society that ever existed. And that the Republican Party actually is the opposite. It is transforming the American economy with its deregulation. It has certainly under, for example, George W. Bush presided over mass immigration and celebrated it, destroyed the industrial base, all based on essentially theories and ideas that come out of liberalism, economic liberalism, Thatcherism, Reaganism. And yet at the same time, people like Thatcher, Reagan, Bush, and so on, did somehow summon up a sense of nationhood and a sense of traditional identity that in comparison with Democrats seemed their party. But these contradictions were bound to become unraveled at some point. And clearly too late, no one within the party who was responsible or part of the leadership 
were prepared to adjust until these insurgents, Buchanan, critically, a little bit of Perot, and then, of course, Trump come in to champion that. So at the time, and I think what's admirable about him is he's this, he's the opposite of your average Beltway pundit who's completely careerist and trimming sails this way and that. He didn't care. He reminds me of other writers. I think of someone like Michael Lind, who is quite close to Francis in some respects, who also have the integrity of not bowing to the various winds in political power. And having watched this class of my peers the last 10 years, I honestly, I can barely find a single principled one among them at this point. But that is what, in some ways, this radical right would mean. It's just a kind of revolt. Not a very coherent revolt, but a revolt of people who think of America as it was, as they thought it was, don't like these elites, don't like their vision of the world. And Trump is this charismatic leader who's managed somehow to symbolize that for people in such a powerful way that they're prepared to ignore the fact that he is quite obviously, in my view anyway, an incredibly dangerous and reckless, disastrous human being to be president of the United States. Francis was prescient about this. Yeah. The question is, where does that lead? <laughs> because you can't really, in the United States, have a completely protectionist trade policy. You can definitely be tougher on China. We are de facto a multiracial society. We can't possibly undo this. We are a multicultural society in ways that we can't undo. Yeah. And I think the fear is that when you hear these arguments, which are compelling in some ways, terrified of what it would take to actually impose them again, and who it would have to crush, and what freedoms it would have to remove. And they always seem to dodge those questions and simply say, this is, we represent this thing. And maybe it's a way of reorganizing an entire faction in American politics, and that's really its function. It won't actually achieve what it wants to achieve, but it will more successfully organize our politics into one party that is more effectively the traditional party and one party that is the disruptive internationalist party. And that seems to be where we're headed. Yeah. Francis, at the end of his life, shares a lot of your despair or if that's not the right word, a lot of your misgivings about what possible political platform could come to be a vehicle for some of these instances. When Francis looks at American political debate, what he says is that this is actually not a philosophical or ideological dispute between two bodies of thought. Instead, what it is a clash between two rival elites. And he says that if American conservatives are to displace and topple correct, li corrupt liberal elites. It won't be by relying on the ideas of conservative elites. It will be found by really recognizing who the base of the Republican Party is. Francis, following a sociologist named Donald Warren, calls them middle American radicals. And for Francis, middle American radicals who are middle and lower middle class people, they don't attend college, they hold jobs in skilled and semi-skilled professions, they're anti-ideological in their loyalties. But what Francis says is that this group of people, this demographic of people called middle American radicals, 
they really represent the ignored base of the Republican Party. And that if the Republican Party is going to win elections, that the Republican Party has to ignore the advice that they should seek out and build bridges to minority communities, but that the party should demand much closer attention to working class whites instead. So for Francis, this kind of lower working class group of middle American radicals are very much a vanguard party for him. He says that what makes them interesting is that they are motivated not by an ideology, but by instinctive defense of communal roots and by the kind of hostility to cosmopolitan ideas. And during the 90s, Francis aligns with and works with since it supports the candidacies of Patrick Buchanan, both in 1992 and 1996. And he sees in Buchanan a kind of hope that a new synthesis of nationalism, populism can be combined into a really viable national party. Buchanan loses. But it's not really Buchanan's loss that that it's not really Buchanan's loss that makes Francis despair. It's instead what he hears from new president Bill Clinton, who begins to talk about what he calls a third American revolution, an America that in 2050 won't be majority white and that won't have a dominant European country. And so Francis's transition late in his life is to move from focusing on a kind of class-based analysis of conservatism to one that really centers and privileges the importance of racial consciousness for the Republican Party. And in short, he encourages the Republican Party to really enshrine the GOP as the party of white voters, to make immigration the central issues, and that, that the GOP should really begin to appeal to racial solidarity as a kind of backbone for its national strategy. And be unapologetic about it in as much as the argument is that the identity, the racial identity politics has been, is now legitimized and regarded as an actual moral force on the left. Francis's ex, which of course invites the right to say, fine, okay, and there are many more of us than there are of you, except of course, whites are deeply divided themselves about this. Yeah. And that there's almost no one that your middle American radical hates more yeah. than a white lefty, than a Tony Fauci or a Hillary Clinton or a member of that elite. Doesn't this come back then at some kind of way to a kind of resuscitation of racial and ethnic chauvinism, let's put it as politely as we may? Yeah. At the end of his life, Francis is reading politics largely through the lens of race. However, his kind of interpretation of white racial identity is very despairing. Francis does not think that America could survive the loss of a white majority. He doesn't think that the culture of America could be fully transmitted to non-whites. But the primary enemy of white Americans is not the Democratic Party. It's not liberalism. It's not minorities, Andrew. The primary enemy of white Americans is an inner enemy. It's the mentality of white people themselves, says Francis. Because according to Francis, white people strongly discourage ethnocentrism among themselves, and they tolerate it amongst other people. It's given rise to civilizational catastrophe, where the kind of values of Western culture, according to Francis, are being used against it. And... 
white majorities across the Western world are offering equality, civic equality and inclusion to people who, who wish to rule over them. They offer tolerance to people who will dominate them. And so white people are, according to Francis, harmed by this self-destructive mentality, which is turning its cultural displacement into a mark of its moral virtue. This again, this is Francis. That's perfectly, perfectly put, that, that somehow the dissolution of a white majority is in some kind of moral act. Yeah. That it is a, it's an act, or for example, you hear this in the United Kingdom, for example, the mass immigration of non-white people is in some ways the only way to prove that you're no longer an imperial racist power, even as it then provokes, obviously, a response from the tradition party, <laughs> the Tories, who are saying, no, we don't want our country to be a place where anyone from anywhere in Europe can just come and sit down and live like anybody in England. A very basic understanding. We don't see why every immigrant that shows up has to be able to be part of our country. These are the very core, why don't we have a border? Who is we and who are they? And when they raise these questions, of course, liberals just de de denounce them as fascist, racist, ugly bigots, and so on and so forth. Whereas really, they're just asking, why is this being done to us? Yeah. And when did we agree to this? That's the other thing. When did we exactly sign on to the idea that we want an end to white America? When do we sign on to the idea that we want the country to have a post-racial, and in fact, not a post-racial, but actually at this point on the left, a newly racialized regime in which whites are systematically disadvantaged? Yeah. For Francis, immigration was really the key issue of politics in the beginning of the third millennium. And he observes that the sociological and ideological use of immigration goes hand in hand with the management of politics by liberal elites. Francis claims that immigration really breaks down the older unity of the nation, creating a citizenry that is uh, more easily manip manipulated by, but also more dependent on liberal governance. But most importantly of all, Francis says, and we can argue whether he's right about this, most importantly of all, Francis says that immigration allows the importation of a new underclass, which will provide really fresh opportunities to engineer new sol solutions to social problems. So it, cre it creates the problems that only liberalism can solve. And so it's a self-perpetuating yeah. edifice. Let's think about, I think about immigration, uh, which was treated as a, among elites, as a, just a subject you can't talk about. Certainly you can't talk about in any restrictionist way because that is self-evident that you are a Nazi. And that is definitely part of the elite consensus. And yet at the same time, let's think about Christianity, and this is where it's interesting about the right. Christianity, as the Catholic Church continually reminds us, is actually about accepting the stranger. It is about dissolving the difference between us and them. It is about universal love. It is about treating a citizen from another country as morally indistinguishable from a citizen of your own. And yet that, of course, is deeply destructive of the traditional society that conservatives, or at least the right, wants to preserve. And so you, but then you also have the fact that the right in America is propelled and defined in part by religion, by conservative evangelicalism. 
But when push comes to shove, then in fact, the evangelical right is less Christian than it is tradition oriented in as much as in fact, it, it itself represents in some ways the most powerful repudiation of Christianity in contemporary America, at least Christianity as the core universalizing, transcendent, globalist, egalitarian ideology. And so there's a strange but understandable conflict between evangelical Christians, the actual Christianity that they profess to proclaim, and in fact, their deeply anti-Christian views of who belongs and who does not belong. Yeah, that's an interesting observation, Andrew. And I think of, I imagine what our political parties of both the left and right would look like if we took a wire brush to them and strip them of the religious and moral traditions that flow from Christianity and from liberalism. And I imagine what they would look like if we reduced the left and right to basic raw temperaments. And I think what they would look like, and I think what you were describing, is that they would look like, on one hand, a left whose mission is to revolutionize both the present and the past by judging it by remorseless standards of equality. And I think it would look like a right where ideals of loyalty and belonging and membership had turned into a kind of unapologetic chauvinism. That would be, I think, a plausible future for American and Western politics in which both of our major political parties and movements had been significantly secularized. And one of the reasons I think to study the history of the radical right in the 20th century is to get a sense of the kind of political passions, the political ideas that have always been present on the right because they're present in every human life and what they would be like in their kind of untutored, undisciplined, pure form. I think that the question about a secular right has to be answered in tandem with the secular left. And in my book, I'm, I tell the story about the post-Christian right in the 20th century for, because I'm also worried about, for the same reasons that I'm worried about secular forms of uh, politics on the left. And here's maybe a place where we can agree or find ourselves in heated agreement or maybe just outright disagreement, but it may sound paradoxical, Andrew, but I guess I'm convinced that a more religious society in our case. I'm talking about religion at a kind of deep cultural, social, moral level. I think a more religious society would, in our case, result in a kind of less religious politics. And I think we are in serious need of a kind of ecumenical consensus about the ultimate importance of religion in our politics that might prevent us from being exposed to the kind of basic raw political temperaments of left and right that you are describing in really terrifying detail. But that implies that, in fact, probably the most salient fact sociologically in America yeah. uh, with regard to our politics and with regard to the rise of the radical and indeed the utterly sec the secularization of the American left in a way that's really quite remarkable is the decline of Christianity as a yeah. lived faith in America. Yeah. Yes. That it was a moderating impulse. It was a unifying impulse. Yeah. It was also, in some respects, a liberal impulse in as yeah. much as it, it definitely told 
white Americans that they do have an owe a moral obligation to their black fellow citizens, and that this is not something that Christianity can or should ever ignore. But I agree with you. I think you see the contours of a overwhelmingly white, traditional, nativist, protectionist, non-interventionist, and a multiracial, globalist, radical left, which sees no aspect of American society, even the earliest childhoods of our children, to be immune from ideological transformation. And in a way that will is designed to to accelerate the dismantling of tradition. You know, it's essential that we find the right tension and the right balance between the kind of traditions that we've been talking about. We've been talking about liberalism, about Christianity, and the kind of eruption of ideals of racial and sexual identity that pose real problems for that tradition. America has, Andrew, in my opinion, America has never been a nation held together by a single narrow ideology. It's always had a liberal political tradition. In some sense, that liberal political tradition has always been a dominant tradition. But it's also had other moral traditions that existed alongside it. I think of a tradition of civic republicanism, but also a tradition of religious piety with its origins in dissenting Protestantism, but which have been expanded to include Catholics like you and I. And what held it all together, what held the country together through crisis, what held the country together through serious times of testing and trial, but also provided a way for the country to renew itself, was what we might call, and what I might have used to describe the kind of childhood that we both had, for lack of a better word, we might call it civil religion. We might call it a kind of ecumenical religious consensus. And in American experience, that this wasn't a religion that replaced the faith of Americans. It was really a set of kind of stories and symbols and rituals that created an ecumenical consensus about our country. It provided the kind of deep code, the deep set of implicit understandings that made healthy, stable communities high in social trust and high in social capital possible. That civil religion provided, I think, at least two things, two things that were, that were missing today in our political discussion. It provided an account of why our country and why our nation and its government have legitimacy. But it also, it also and just as important, it also provided grounds on which it could be responsibly criticized. And so what that civil religion, which was open to people of different ethnicities, different religious traditions, different backgrounds, it gave us a way to interpret the history of our country in terms of its relationship to God. And obviously, it wasn't without problems and temptations of its own, and it didn't put an end to disagreement. On the contrary, it didn't. But it did provide a kind of agreement as to at least what we're arguing about and what makes us who we are, and what makes our identity, both religious and political, it helped us understand why we're locked together in civil argument rather than something else. Andrew, that would be my attempt to put into words what's lacking from a political life when I view it from, from 30 years later, from a childhood that was structured by a Christian political life. But maybe, maybe that doesn't, resonates differently with you. I just concerned that at some point, 
the temptation of those of us who are largely in the middle. I will say this about myself, mate. I am deeply indebted to a liberal society. I am, a, as an individual, I'm a very liberal individual in that respect. Believe in individual freedoms, believe in diversity, complexity, pluralism. Yeah. At the same time, I also really do revere things like love of one's own country, love of one's own history, pride in the civic symbols of our national life, a sense that we are different than others, that there is a difference between being an American and someone who isn't, and that we need to preserve ways of life rather than undermine them, and that we should have a pretty tolerant attitude towards different ways of life. And I'm torn now. My peers in the elite seem to me to despise large numbers of Americans, really despise them. It's reciprocated, but the contempt people have for people of faith, the absolutism of their moral righteousness when it comes to questions of identity, their willingness to use coercion, shaming, ostracism to enforce their new morality, it evokes an emotional response that leads to something like Trump. Yeah. Because you lose any common culture and you become essentially a war between those traditional bodies of American opinion and globalized and liberal, increasingly not liberal, but increasingly left elites. Yeah. And they frighten me. Yeah. They really do. And so I'm frightened by both aspects. I'm frightened of the intolerance on both sides. And I yearn for something that could, and I, I hope for a while that maybe superficially even a Biden figure who represents in his own past and upbringing exactly the kind of communities that, that we remember and believe in and the kind of easygoing collegial Catholicism that you and I probably love. And yet he has, he's become this extraordinarily partisan and aggressively left divider in ways that he's rhetorically incapable of seemingly to find some middle ground. And then we have this monstrous person, Donald Trump, who's, who is, and you could think of, I could imagine a leader of the right who represented more traditional culture, who represented a desire not to transform America, but who wasn't insane, dangerous, unstable, contemptuous of democratic life or the compromises that it requires. So where am I to go? Where are we to go? What this book did for me was help me understand why the emotional power of the right is so great at this moment, because the, the liberalism seems to have come to a point at which it is so dismantling what we understood to be our society, that it evokes not a pragmatic, but it's almost violent or aggressive or emotional response. Yeah. And I think many of us are struggling to find our way through this thicket. Yeah. As Americans, we lack a language to describe, to make sense of our loyalties to a people, to a culture, and to a nation. Americans have been almost completely, until recently, been reduced to just the language of American individualism. And we find it hard to make sense of ideals and obligations that might attach us to authorities and to traditions 
in which we can be formed for the life of a free and democratic people. I think that we are in real trouble if the only language we have to describe our public life is that of a kind of secular cosmopolitan liberalism that imagines that all of the parochial ties of our life are problematic and need to be either cut or gotten rid of. I simply don't share faith in the millennial dream that a kind of secular cosmopolitan liberal state can finally be satisfying for us. Human beings need to have forms of solidarity and belonging that can embed them, that can root them, that can give them a place in time, in history, in space that is theirs, and from which that particular point can be a place in which they seek what's universal and transcending. I think that's rather beautifully put. It is at its best what anchors the politics of someone like Orban, who sees his country as an island in a way of tradition and stability and homogeneity against a globalizing, internationalizing Europe. I think it would be possible, for example, to have the kind of vision that you have in which we were still unashamed of our traditions and our culture and our history, that also sought to include other minorities within it, but not as is currently perceived, as in which the minorities themselves are indictments of the majority, that they take precedence over them, actually, that in fact the goal is to eradicate any of these, not just any of these identities, but then to elevate those who are deemed to be oppressed. I think people would be quite happy to tolerate some of these things if they weren't so extremely enforced, as if being a man or a woman had to now be somehow questioned and undermined that if you cannot live with some stable ideas of who you are, who your family has been as a man or as a woman, then you're completely lost. Yeah. It's possible. It must be possible to both enforce and embrace traditional understandings of the world, which are often, by the way, also largely true while accommodating those of us who are different, like the gay person, but without un overturning the entire bloody order. For me, the project was gay marriage, which was in one way liberal, but it was also an endorsement of an institution and of the family linking this minority with the inheritance of the majority in a way that was designed to respect that majority and not to undermine it. And now it is a point at which Every basic institution has to be critiqued as being essentially oppressive. Every small inequality regarded as a function of overwhelming oppression. And the extremism of the left is forcing the right, forcing them, I think, to these deeper themes. When I went back and reread some of these radical reactionaries a few years ago, and what struck me was how deeply drawn I was to many of their arguments. So they, they felt that it was, and it was important for me to wrestle with that, to understand the power of the attraction of tradition, of meaning, of holistic societies, and the perils of liberalism and the drawbacks of liberalism. I, I'm conflicted about this because 
I don't want to endorse this. On the other hand, I don't want to ignore it either. Ability in an open society to understand those who are not its fans or might be its victims even seems to me important. Yeah. I mean, what you're describing, Andrew, is actually one of the most essential moments and one of the most essential intellectual virtues that one needs to have to live in a liberal, open society. You were talking about your kind of the seduction, the allure, the attraction that you felt for anti-liberal forms of thought. This isn't a threat to or a danger to the kind of open liberal society. This is actually something really, really important to it. In 1941, Leo Strauss gives a, a lecture at the New School to a set of American students who are about to set off into World War, World War II. And Strauss reflects back on his own experience as a student during the early part of the Weimar Republic, during which Strauss is encountering and wrestling with a lot of kind of radical right-wing views. And here's what Strauss says. It's super interesting. He says that one of the reasons why Weimar fell apart is that the liberal intelligentsia and the liberal professori couldn't really understand the, the deeply illiberal passions of a lot of his classmates. And rather than teaching them to better understand these kind of primordial passions, they wrote them off as, as kind of retrograde or atavistic. But Strauss says something really interesting. And I think, I think what I'm hearing from you sounds Straussian. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Strauss says that in order to live in an open liberal society, you have to understand the allure and the seduction and the appeal of the closed society. You have to really understand why virtues of heroism and loyalty and bravery and belonging and sacrifice are important parts of the human condition. You have to understand why somebody would want to live like that. You have to understand what human virtues might be possible living that way. Now, neither Strauss nor you in your essay wanted to turn people into anti-liberal intellectuals or activists. Your goal is to turn people into better democratic citizens. But if Strauss is right, and I think you're right too, the way you just talked about it, is that you really have to understand the, the power, the, the kind of gravity behind forms of thought that are pre-liberal and non-liberal. After all, we're not simply talking about authoritarians here. We're talking about some of the greatest philosophers in our own Western tradition. Our ability, Andrew, to think about liberalism, to think about our life beyond the boundaries that liberalism sets to it, is essential for preserving any liberal practices that we might want to have. Yes, absolutely. And it's and the failure of the current American left to understand that is an extremely dangerous development um, for them as well as for society as a whole and democracy as a whole. Uh, yeah, this, there's a kind of paradox here, which is worth contemplating and maybe worth thinking about more, which is that in some sense, liberalism relies on moral and spiritual traditions that it can't create and that in some sense are opposed to liberalism. And also that liberal practices, liberal traditions are sometimes most deeply threatened by liberal ideas and liberal ideals themselves. That means that for any liberal society worth preserving, that liberalism has to and must and 
exist in a kind of tension with non-liberal ways of thinking and non-liberal ways of living. It's weird to read a book about the radical right because many of these people are objectionable in some ways. But I have to say, they've, and I'll say this, having been trying to understand this for a few years, having taken a little bit by surprise by it, to be perfectly honest, I find deep resonance with some of the things they're saying. I feel deep emotional resonance. And, and I think what this book does is help us understand the broader constructs of those ideas that have such emotional relevance. And I think it's better to understand than to instantly anathematize. And the writers and thinkers in your book really help us do that. I, I thank you so much, Matthew, for the care and time you've taken with us. I, it's a complicated and difficult topic. I know this is not going to be the most accessible or easy a podcast to listen to and engage. But I really think these are the deeper themes that we are dealing with right now and that we need to discuss them much more openly and candidly. Can a multiracial society continue? Can a liberal cosmopolitan society really endure in the long run if it does not understand broader alternatives to its way of life? So thank you, Matthew, for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. I apologize for my voice. It's terrible. My lungs are shitty as hell. I hope to be healthier next week where we'll be talking about the case against the sexual revolution. We're full on reactionary mode here at the dish and the dish cast for a while. We're going to air some really reactionary and countercultural ideas and see where we end up. Thank you, Matthew. And we look forward to seeing you next week.